Welcome to another episode of We Don't Die. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the international best-selling book called We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. And today on the show, I'm pleased to introduce you to Robin Lansong. Robin had two near-death experiences at eight years old during the Rhodesian War in 1977. The rural African women and men who saved her life taught her how to listen for the medicine song that each person carries within them. Now, Robin sings the medicine song she hears from the land and within each person. She has practiced craniosacral therapy for over 15 years and has given singing medicine to over 10,000 people. Robin is a visual artist, writer, and health intuitive. She is also a speaker and presents workshops with her husband, John. And there's so much more about this amazing woman, but I'll let her tell you in her own words. Her website is robinlandsong.com. Robin Lansong, a warm welcome to We Don't Die Radio. Mm, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, and I'm grateful you're here too. Your story, I've been watching a bit online and it's so unique to anything I've ever heard before. And I know it's been a hard path, but I'm grateful that uh, for everything that you're doing and that you're willing to share your story here with us. Yeah. Just just yesterday I was talking with somebody who was recovering from drug addiction and alcohol. And he said something that was so meaningful to me. He said, if you can make it through that, then I can get up and take my next step forward, whether it's doing a meditation or going to therapy, but that he just felt inspired by it. And I thought, oh, that's totally why I share my story. Yeah. So we are the best one to share the story. Why don't you take us back to when it all happened? And I love the eight-year-old picture of you on your website. My heart just goes out to that little girl. But of course, yeah. out of it became the woman you are today. So yeah. Well, before I begin with my story, I just want to drop in and do some prayer of connection. I've been <clears throat> meditating and connecting to all the listeners and just really remembering that sharing this and getting this across isn't really even about me or my particular details of my story, but about really letting divinity, really letting the great heart come through so each of us can remember the ways that we're already whole that our traumas, our illnesses, our difficulties have not actually diminished us at our very core, that we're already whole and connected. And it's just our difficulty to feel that connection, to remember the ways that we belong and that we're already good enough. And that may my story and may my sharing today serve to help people remember that wholeness, they're good enough, and that we actually are connected with one another and nature. Thank you. Beautiful. Yeah. Helps get me right in the center of why to, why to share my story. Mm -hmm. So when I was a child, unfortunately, I was growing up in a family with parents who were not mentally well. And I wasn't protected. And I was being uh, severely abused. And the difficult part about that is that set me in an environment where I was exposed to other adults who were also not mentally well. And so one of those adults, uh, a man who was a military man, um, it, it seems I don't have um, proof of this, but it's possible that it was since it was 1977 that maybe he was a, a Vietnam vet and not able to, um, you know, one of the people who was having difficulty integrating back into being uh, in not in the military. And so for, you know, whatever reasons in his mind that I may never know, he chose to abduct me. And he uh, actually came, this was, you know, much more before we think of all the protections that we have for children now. This is 1977. And after the Vietnam War, I think there was a lot of um, shock and trauma that people were dealing with. There was a lot of secondary trauma from seeing a lot of the war. So I think that we weren't in a place of protecting children as we are, um, have graduated to do a lot more of that now. And there wasn't child protective services. There weren't things in place around even reporting a missing child. Um, those things were just developing and hadn't really gotten kind of legislated at that point. Um, so we actually came, I was a child that walked home from school. And um, so I tended to linger after school and he probably watched me and kind of knew my routine. And he actually came to the school and got me. And um, and I was very 
sadly, quite skilled at dealing with mentally ill adults and surviving abuse. You know, so I really used my intuition to figure out kind of what kind of crazy he was and how I was going to make it through. And so he drugged me. And uh, as best as I can tell after that, he actually put me in a, in a duffel bag. And then the next thing I know is that I woke up in something that was a, a, an apartment on a military place and and that he had transported me all the way to uh, Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. And where were you living as a child? Uh, uh, I was in the U.S. I was on the East Coast in Delaware. Wow. And and so really what I had to do very quickly was figuring out, like I, like I said, just I would use my intuition to read people and figure out, like, is there any vulnerable spot in them that I can appeal to their humanity? And and what I have to say about him is that I could find no place like that in him, which was really very scary in terms of my, not only my physical safety, but my psychological safety in terms of was I going to become like him? And that, that was my biggest goal. And And I knew that I may not physically survive. But what was important to me is that I spiritually and ethically survive. So um, so he was very dangerous and very threatening to my life. And at one point he did assault me and a, um, a neighbor actually dragged me away from him and was hospitalized. And unfortunately, because he was a very intimidating man, um, he came to the hospital and got me and no one stopped him. And he transported me to a market and what's interesting is that at first I didn't know where we were I didn't I knew we were in a foreign country because I'd seen him use foreign money mm-hmm. but I didn't, I didn't had no idea where and then once we got to the market and it shifted from being mostly Caucasian people to in the market it was um, all black people. and I and I could see the dresses and I could hear the language and I realized that for the first time that we were in Africa and having gone back and done the um, a return trip now, I realize it's because where I was was a very much a whites-only area at first. And then I was taken to that marketplace, and that's where actually the majority of the population lived, um, outside of the places where they um, – it was – like the apartheid in, in terms of the divisions was very extreme at that time. So once at that market, he actually um, – gave me to another man. I'm not sure the nature of the exchange, whether money was exchanged or I wasn't privy to that. But I was given to this other man, and then he just got in a um, in a Land Rover and drove away. And so what happened for me at that moment is that I just lost the worst enemy in the world, but I also lost the person who knew where I came from mm-hmm. and my connection back to the U.S., so it's hard to describe the level of abandonment and the confusion I had in that moment. And your child. Yeah, I'm eight years old. And and like I say, I'm very used to coping with very extreme circumstances, but that was, you know, I'm in a foreign country. I can't even speak to anyone. I don't know anyone around me who's going to speak English. And I don't even know the food in terms of like I was used to stealing food for myself, but all even the food was foreign. So, uh, so this man takes me and we get on a bus and the bus goes for a ways and the bus breaks down and we're now we're very much out in the bush and he, the, you know, they try to fix the bus, but they can't. So they direct everyone to get off the bus and I can't keep up. I'm especially out of the hospital. My ribs have been broken. Um, I'm out of painkillers and the man who, uh, I was, I mean, you know, that is in charge of me. He pushes on me to go forward and he's pushed on my broken ribs. And so I turn and do it. The last thing I can kind of is a little wounded animal that I am and I bite him. So he pulls away and kind of looks at me like, oh, I want nothing to do with you. And he walks on. So now I've just lost the one person I sort of knew and everybody has walked ahead. So they don't see that I'm being left behind. And the, the layers of just wanting to give up and die are so strong at this point, and I feel so worthless and just like refuse. And so I just think, okay, this is mercy. I'm just going to die in the sun, 
and dry up like a puddle. And this is how this will end. You know, my life hasn't been good till now, and this is just going to be the ending. And so I sit down and I just watch bugs and I'm playing with dirt and waiting to just die. And what happens next is that a truck full of armed soldiers comes along. And I think, this is how I'm going to die. And this is going to be quicker. And this is mercy. But what they do is they actually jump down, pick me up, and put me on the truck. And I have no idea what they're going to do. These are all, all black armed soldiers. And, you know, of course, none of them speak English. And they are actually transporting me, I understand now, closer to the border to South Africa. And what I believe is that they were transporting me to a village they thought might be sympathetic to a white child. And, and this is a very complex war. Um, it's really about uh, land use. And so um, white farmers had really taken over a lot of land. And so different factions of um, black soldiers were trying to get basically land equality back. One faction was very extreme and killing white farmers, and the other faction was less extreme and a little bit more in the middle, like, you know, can we have land back, but let's not be as extreme about it. So so I believe that this was the middle faction, and they knew that my time was limited to be a white child alone if the guerrilla soldiers found me. So to take me to a village that might be might take me in was really saving my life. So I arrived to that village and I, um, it was getting dusk and I heard what I thought was barking dogs and I didn't want to go near them. So I just kind of hid in a tree and spent the night in a tree by myself. And, and what's really interesting is that, is that I actually felt some peace. I was in nature. I was a child who was very oriented towards the land, towards trees and so this tree I climbed up in, I felt very held, and it felt like my home tree. And the stars and the sky were incredibly brilliant, and I was free of the abductor. I, I was feeling pretty sure that he wouldn't be able to retrace and find all those kind of convolutions of how I got to this point. And it was incredibly, even though I was hungry and alone, I was free of the abductor, and that actually made me feel like I had uh, a freedom that I hadn't had and that my life was maybe possibly going to live. So in the morning, I heard the women from this village singing. And keep in mind, coming from a place where I wasn't cherished, this singing was so full of life and so full of engagement and something I had never heard before. And there was a joy in these adults, and I wanted to know about it. So I went to the edge of the village, and I was peeking in, and and two of the women spotted me. And they were doing their work, mashing food in their grinding bowls. And they stopped their singing and, you know, were curious, why are we seeing a white child here? And so they kept doing their singing, and then they brought me a bowl of food. And it was kind of yellow mashed food that I had never eaten before. It tasted kind of like cornbread. And then they brought me some water and I was very, very tenuous. I was very scared. I was like a wounded little animal and I would run away and then come back and drink all the water. And my tongue had gotten swollen. I was so dehydrated. So I ate their food and drank their water and then just watched them. And they watched me and then more people kind of came and watched me. And eventually I I crept in a little closer and I saw that nobody was harming me or coming after me or trying to trap me. So in, at that night, they set out an animal skin for me to sleep on. And so I, I took advantage of that and slept on that animal skin. And in the morning, it was the children that came and welcomed me in. And so they gathered around me and they were <clears throat> touching my hair that was then blonde. Mm-hmm. And they were touching my white skin. And they were very intrigued. And there was just an immediate welcoming that I'd never experienced before. And one of the girls took my hand and she led me, what I now understand was to their fire circle, their ceremony place. And she began to tell a story that was really the story about how I arrived to their village. And and again, keep in mind, this is a very rural area. They probably just had a very, um, a life kind of to themselves. I'm 
you know, they probably saw some white farmers, but they really didn't have white far- white people come interact with them. Mm-hmm. And there you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there I am, you know, out of nowhere. And so she's telling this story and I realize she's, it's kind of like the creation, the myth story of how I got there. And while she's doing this, she's putting the black ash on my white skin. And she's making me part of them. And so she's delightful and she's laughing. And I've never seen another child laugh with such freedom. And she stands so proud. And all the children start welcoming me in and they're putting ash on my face and ash in my hair. And they're making me dark like them. And it is the most belonging I have ever felt in my whole life. And I want to stay here in this belonging, in this welcoming, and learn how she stands so proud and learn how she laughs so free. And what happens next changes my life. One of the women comes it's the, and she starts singing to me. And she's calling me to come closer to her and she's singing to me. And she's looking me over and you know, she, I'm very protective of my whole side of my ribs that's all bruised and purple. But her song is feeding me and nourishing me. And she's pouring this love into me. And from she's gathering connection from the land. And I, I can just feel it that you know, every living thing around, she's calling them to me so I feel connected and alive again. And what happens is that I actually allow her to wrap her arms around me and I literally collapse in her arms. And it is the first mothering I have ever experienced in my life. And I trust that if I stay with her, I will become whole again. I will become a real child again. And I will be able to breathe in and out like she does so freely. And so the so the village keeps me and they feed me and they... I start to become part of in terms of learning their songs. And one of the men teaches me how to plant in the field. And singing is part of everything. It's part of planting. It's part of making food. It's part of greeting each other. And and I'm learning this new way. And what really is incredible about this culture is, is listening to the ancestors in the land and the calling songs that are there. And so by doing dancing ceremony with them, I'm beginning to open to this way of listening to what's already so deep in the land and in each person. And so one day I'm playing by myself. I'm, I'm a little bit further from the village and I hear a sound. I'm by a creek and I look up and the, uh, there's a soldier and he's aiming his gun at me. And I pray to him for mercy to see with his original eyes that I don't know why he's got a gun and I don't know why he's aiming at me, but I want him to see me with his original eyes like everybody from the village can see me. Uh-huh. He doesn't. And he, when the gun barrel lines up as just a circle, I'm, my whole body is frozen in fear. And I hear the gun go off and I feel the bullet searing across the top of my head. And the force of it blows me off my feet and knocks me to the ground. And I'm praying for somebody from the village to come find me and help me. And And I throw up from the shock and I begin to feel my life force pull out of my body, come back into my body, go back out again, and then it goes right out the back of my heart. It's like the container that our body usually is actually got opened up and my life force left. And so I crossed over into this other place and I'm first very disoriented and confused. I don't know where I am. I know something important just happened, but I can't remember what it is. And And then somebody touches my face and I remember I have a face. And she puts both her hands on either side of my cheek and I all of a sudden, remember, I do have a form, but it feels a little bit like Casper the Ghost, like I have a tail, and I'm so light. And then I can see again, and I can see this beautiful young black woman, and she has a yellow dress, and she's so beautiful. And I see her sister behind her, 
And I recognize them, but I can't quite name them. And what I realize now is that it's the two women from the village who took such care of me. And so they they show me, they, they wave their arm and show me I could go into this golden glowing sphere. And I remember when I see that sphere, that if I go into that, I will be fully restored. I will be received and loved because that sphere is so full of loving force and vitality that it could restore a thousand injured people and never be diminished. But then I realized, but I want to stay with my village. They've named me Aisha. They've given me a naming ceremony. I have a new family. I have this life I want. And so if I go with them and go into the sphere, I lose that. And so this confusion sends me reeling backwards from that beautiful, brilliant scene. And I fall and I fall and I land into someplace that's like a dark stairwell that looks like what I would imagine Ireland on a cold and rainy day. And I thought, oh, I had it better before. Now where am I? And just when I'm kind of struggling to get up on my own, a man appears and he looks old and rickety and like he's on death's door. And, and he's offering to help me up. And I think, oh, if I use his arm, I'm just going to pull him over. He's so fragile himself. But I can't get up on my own. And so I accept his arm. And he's actually very sturdy. And again, I feel like I know him, but I can't name him. And so he ends up guiding me down these stairs and into a dark cave. And there I confront all the all the times that I was abused and I never expressed how I felt. All my suppressed feelings are in that cave. And it's really quite terrible, but he stays with me and keeps me steady. And when I realize the abuse wasn't my fault, that I wasn't doing something wrong, I wasn't being bad to deserve it, it happened and it wasn't my fault. When I realized that, then the screaming stops and, and we get to walk the rest of the way through that cave. And so he leads me through, um, we actually jump off a cliff together. And as we're falling from that cliff, he says to me telepathically, this is dying. And I think this is peaceful, beautiful, there's brilliant stars that feel like living relatives. This is wonderful. And we float down and we go from night sky and we float down into morning sunrise. And there again is that glowing sphere. And he directs me, you can go there. You can go into that glowing sphere that's now a hundred times bigger. And then he parts paths with mine. But I still feel the peace and the love. And the steadiness is really what he gave me. And so I think I could go into the glowing sphere, but I'd love to tell my village, my, my newfound family about this man that I just met in this cave. And, and so I, I started thinking about my village and how much I want to get back to them. And then I see below me there's a field. And so I land in that field. And then I start searching for the people from my village. And then I get scared that, they're wounded, that they've been injured, and that they're down on the ground and they can't answer me. And I'm searching for them, and I'm, I get more and more distressed until I just literally collapse on the ground crying. And when I'm done crying, I'm like a storm cleared out, and I hear a little rustle. And I go to that rustle I hear, and there's a man, and he's got a beard, and he's wearing a robe, and he has a sheep herder staff. And when I'm in his presence, I can feel no disturbance. He is like a mountain, still mountain lake in the morning, just completely serene. And, and I stand before him, and I feel like he's encompassing me. And I look at his face. And I think I see him with this man and a beard and this stillness and his face changes into a lion. And then it changes again to a child. And I want him to stay the same, but then I realize he's showing me is not the form that matters. It's the connection. 
because I feel as much love for the lion and the girl that I'm seeing as I felt for him when I first saw his face. And then he leans his forward, his forehead to mine, and I see as he sees that we are all connected. There are living lines like golden spiderwebs connecting us all. And we can strengthen those lines with our focus and our love. And so he comes back and I see his face again. And I have such faith and trust in him that I lean my whole being into his. And we travel through a tunnel and it's very fast and it's beautiful and it's totally painless. And we come out above looking at the scene where I have been shot. We're looking above and my body is there and my African mother has found me and she's pulled my body up on her lap and she's wailing and she's rocking back and forth and her hand is on the top of my head, stopping the blood flow. And I love her so fully and I feel her love for me and I wish I could let her know I'm totally fine. I'm not in pain and I'm at peace and I don't want her to suffer. And so now that I see this scene, I, I begin to rise up and I'm, I'm basically leaving it behind as if my body is a suit that I don't need anymore. It's like I'm closing an envelope and I'm just leaving all that behind. And I go up into a passageway and there I meet beings that purify any remaining um, self-blame I might have or self-condemnation. And they, they move through me and take away any heaviness or darkness and purify me until I remember I'm made of the same source that they are, which is divine love. And I'm going home to what I see as the great heart. And I'm heading further towards that purity, that wholeness, that place where I was a seed that the great heart sung my name into creation and that that's how I came to being. And as I'm heading that way, I'm also starting to hear that my African mother, I call her Mami Atan, that she has begun changing her wailing into singing. And then she has called on the ancestors in the land for a calling song to call me home. And that, that song is so pure and so strong, it has gone through the veils that closed That, in terms of how I was crossing forward. And that that song reaches me where I am. And in front of me is the great heart. And behind me is her calling song with the ancestors calling me back home. And when that song wraps around me, it reminds me, it's a moment of revelation that I remember I'm like her. I'm a medicine singer. And, and I haven't done my purpose yet, which is to sing to people so they can remember their wholeness as she's doing for me right now. And that desire to be part of the choir, the people who do their part of singing medicine songs, that turns me around in the tunnel and I start heading back. And I'm reborn back into my body and I'm reborn back into the physical pain. And she's there holding me like a container because she's solid and I feel so fragile and like I'm just crackly leaves that could just be blown around in the wind. And the village takes me back in and they put um, plants and medicine on the top of my head and they do prayer to make sure that the hatred that was on the bullet is no longer on my head. So I will not go forward in life with that hatred on me. And so what happens next is several days later, those soldiers come back and they attack the village. And I'm in a hut with one of the other mothers. And when we hear the shooting start, she hides me. And when she, when the shooting dies down and there's silence, she grabs me and her child and um, we try to escape. And so she has me on one hip and her child on the other. And, we, and she starts running. 
and she's running towards the Limpopo River, towards the big trees and the cover. And she makes it about uh, maybe 15 feet, and bullets come from the from the right, and I'm on her hip <laughs> on the left. And so she gets shot, and we go down. Oh, no. And... And so when I recover and I'm, I'm standing, I'm, I'm thinking I need to drag her and pull her, but she's yelling at me to keep going. And I'm only, you know, two, about two days or so after my recovery of being shot. So this is the first time I've moved around and she's never yelled at me, but she's yelling at me to go, to go. And she's pointing at the trees. And so I follow her command and I run and my heart is breaking that I'm not taking her with me. And I make it about maybe 20, 30 feet before I collapse because I'm, you know, I'm just recovering. I've had blood loss. And so I collapse forward. And again, I just hit the ground hard and I begin to go into death again. And I cross over and I am in a new place and it's white and there's a horizon line and there's a song being sung to me and I moved closer to that song and it's like a a Sesame Street song where the words are bouncing in front of me and there's a little blue ball bouncing on the words and the song says, you will live, you will live. And I recognize it as the melody to Three Blind Mice. Uh-huh. And, and I trust who's ever singing me the song because the kindest thing my brother ever did to me, for me, is when I was sick in bed, he read me the whole book set of Three Blind Mice. And it's the nicest, sweetest thing he ever did for me. So Three Blind Mice is a very positive thing for me. So I trust who's ever singing me this song. And so I go closer and I am listening to this song. And then I finally realize it's not just a school song I'm to memorize and to sing along with, but that it's a message to me. And the message is, you will live. And I think, did I die again? And I look around and it's white and I have no sense of a body and there's no landscape and there's no other people and I'm not, you know, by the Limpopo River anymore. And I think, oh, I think... I think I've died again, but this song is being sung to me. And then what happens next is that I'm seeing the record player where this song is going and the song is done. And, you know, for those of us who had record players, it's at the end where the stylus is at the end. And I take the stylus off and I'm looking at the record and there's deep scratches, even gouges in the beginning of a record. And for those of us who remember records, that you can't play that part of the record anymore. No, it's, right. It's history. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, oh, this record needs to be thrown away. And I hear a huge voice that is so powerful that it, you know, if there was ground, it would shake the ground, but there's no ground where I am. And the voice says, the wounded places are how I find you so I can love you. And I say, so you're not going to throw me away even though I'm damaged? And I hear again, the wounded places are how I find you, how I, so I can recognize you, and that's the places I love you most. And I get curious about who's speaking to me, and I can suddenly see through a veil. And there's a powerful being, so powerful this being is that I'm a little scared. And I can see through and he's seated and he's in um, meditation position, his legs are crossed. And he's a man, but he's also very beautiful and his hair is black and it's on a bun on top of his head. And he's this kind of very bluish, um, blue color, like a blue poppy. And he has beautiful ornamentation all around him and beautiful necklaces. And I have the sense that if he moved one hand, he could create a mountain. And with the other hand, he could destroy it. So I'm a little intimidated being in the presence of this much power. But again, he's the one that's been singing me the song, You Will Live. And, And he's showing me that destruction 
makes available the ingredients for creation. And he's showing me that two planes of land that come together and they crush together and it seems so violent, but in the end, there's a beautiful mountain. And he says to me, shall we destroy the mountain so that you can have the beach? And I say, no, I don't like the destruction part. I want the mountain and the beach. And he shows me the mountain coming down grain by grain in little mudslides and that this is what makes the beach and that this is what makes the diversity of the landscapes. And he says to me again, destruction makes available the ingredients for creation and that you can't see right now what looks like total annihilation is the beginning of something new. And I say, I understand. And he says, you understand now, but you will forget again. But it's okay. I will hold the big picture. And so I'm sent back to my body. And I, I become conscious again. And I'm, I've been laying on my arm. It's, it got pinned under my body. And my, it's all numb and tingling. And I'm incredibly weak. And there's dirt in my mouth because I fell face forward. And I think, I don't know that I want to live. And I remember that my village has been attacked and I don't know who's alive and who's died. And I hear the voice. He's still with me. Pull forward now. It's a command. And I think, I, I can't. I can't do it. And he's, and he's commanding me to put my hands in the sand and pull forward. And, and when I see next to me, there's a plant right next to my face. There's a plant that's still standing. And its leaves are up towards the sun and its roots are in the soil. And I think, how can this plant still be standing? My, my village has been attacked. All life has been destroyed. How can this plant still be aimed up towards the sun? And, and I just can't believe that something is still living. And so he commands me inch by inch to go towards the well. And he's getting across to me, somebody will find you at the well. And you have to get further from the village because when night comes, animals are going to smell the blood and you have to be further from it. Wow. And so he commands me to the well and I crawl forward and, until I sleep during the night. And in the morning... <clears throat> A woman does come and she finds me and she washes the dried blood off me and she wraps me up and puts me on her back like she would carry a baby even though I'm eight years old. And she takes me back to her homestead. And what I know now, because I've done a return trip and I have re-found her granddaughter. And so, so this woman who saved me, her name is Mir Lucy and her granddaughter's name is Mayamu. And Mayamu told me that when she brought this wounded white child back to the homestead, back to her village, that others looked at her and said, it's too dangerous for you to have a wounded white child. You could be accused of abducting her or the gorilla side would kill you if you're helping the whites. And she said, she's a living human being. I won't throw her away. And if she hadn't done that, if she hadn't loved me so bravely, I wouldn't be here. She could have just left me at the well. Sure. It was an incredible danger for her to have a white child. And now that I understand more about the war, they were right. If the, if the white government soldiers had found her, she could have been accused of abducting a white child, which was very dangerous for her. And if the guerrilla soldiers found her, she would be accused of you know helping the the white government, which was also even more dangerous. Uh-huh. So she hid me, and I stayed with them, and she they nursed me back to health, and they had the uh, medicine singers come and do singing prayer for me again to heal my head, and that they continued to open up the medicine singing in me. They were, when they sang to me, it felt like they were calling down the light in the stars to help revitalize my commitment to being alive. And so they hid me and they were making arrangements to get me to the closest white family, which were farmers across the river in the South, into South Africa. And so now I've met the man whose grandmother arranged um, to take me over to the, the white farmers. 
And, and I got to go back. So this um, last April, um, we did a ton of research to, to find Mayamu. And we, through amazing connections and synchronicity, we found her. And um, I got a four-minute video of somebody interviewing her. And, and when she was speaking of what she remembered of me, she gestured on top of her head, showing where my bullet wound had been. And that was our confirmation because we had told no one where that bullet wound was. So she had to know that directly herself. And this area is now Zimbabwe. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so I got to go back and retrace my steps. And with the help of many people, we found the first hospital I was in with the broken ribs. I got to stand and hold the bed frame of the bed I laid in. And, and for, you know, for Zimbabwe and culture, uh, I'm sorry, I'd say economy, they don't have money to remodel. So sure. for my benefit of research, everything was exactly the same as it was. Hmm. How and, did you get back? Oh, great question. Yeah. Um, and then so I, you didn't have a strong family support system, but, right. but could you just talk about how, how you yeah. grew up and how you got back? Great question. Um, so I was taken across the river um, to the white farmers, and they took care of me for a while. And then really what was happening, I, I believe that the stress and the post-traumatic stress was really showing up in my body. And I was going into what I now understand as parasympathetic shock, where I was just going into a freeze state, which is really the heart rate stops and the breathing can stop. It's it's what our body does for mercy when we're you know at a moment where we think we might die. And so my body started going into that. So they hospitalized me. And from there, uh, I was, I'm not really sure what agency arranged my return home. And so when we were um, there doing the research, um, we found the hospital. And um, we weren't really able to find the records because I'm not sure what name I was admitted under. Um, So that's some more research we still have to do. Um, and we're not sure what agency arranged my return trip, whether that was an American agency like the CIA or whether that was um, welfare services, child welfare um, in South Africa. So that's a piece we're still uh, researching. So I do remember that um, there was um, an official agent that guided me on the return trip, return flight home, and that I was picked up at the airport by my father and taken back to my family. And unfortunately, what happened there, since I was living in a family culture of, if we don't talk about it, it never happened, and a family culture of secrecy, of no abuse, and we don't talk about difficult things. Mm. And so when I when I tried to talk about it, my mother actually hit me. And, you know, I'm recovering from a brain injury, I'm recovering from this, um, my broken ribs, I'm recovering from, my, you know, having been shot across my head. Ducted all of it, Yeah. And so I really cannot tolerate being hit. And so I crawl under my bed and just really remember how to cope in that environment of secrecy and not talking about everything. And so I, I suppress all of it. I put it away in a place where it's packaged up and it doesn't actually end up coming forward until I leave for college. And, you know, as many abuse survivors know, like sometimes it just comes bursting forward. And so once I got to college and had really left home and had a, you know, adult power to make my own way in life, all the memories really just came bursting forward. And it was a very physical, I had a lot of physical responses. And I went into a um, trauma treatment center in terms of the emotional trauma and did about six months of actually um, being inpatient trauma treatment center, psychological trauma, and then got out from there and and did about, um, I would say about 12 years, very consistent therapy. And it was very much just my whole 20s and my half my 30s were very much just about trauma recovery. And very difficult work. And and what I want to get across to you is that it it's so worth the work. Because I have all this freedom now that I wouldn't have if I hadn't done that trauma resolution work. And, and it's very much body, like I did a lot of massage and receiving acupuncture and movement modalities so that 
because trauma is really, it's not in the event, it's in the nervous system. And so healing the body as well as the mind is so essential to get to that freedom where your life is really yours again. And where the PTSD symptoms are, you know, as minimal as they can be. Wow, I, I'm left speechless about the experience. And like you had said earlier, um, I don't even know how you phrased it, um, but when things come crashing down, like what you said of beaches, you know, um, and I think of a beach with all the beautiful sand and it's really all the destroyed shells and sea creatures and things. Um, Mm -hmm. But out of your, of all of that, you have now turned your life into healing, making a difference, singing medicine. And could you talk a little bit about that? Because time goes so fast on these interviews that I don't want to keep you for you know, way past the hour, but um, you've used your pain and trauma and now uh, turned it into something so beautiful. Yeah, and I I really, you know, and kind of when I ask myself, like, where did that spark come from to do my healing work? Part of it is, you know, the drive to be out of pain and out of suffering and, you know, not have so many nightmares and now I have the PTSD be ruling my world. And so there's that motivation to get out of pain and get back to, you know, some sense of living a life. And I really, when I look back now on my near-death experiences, I think I gained something of a spark, a drive to make meaning of my experiences and bring them full circle and so many near-death experiencers have come back with an incredible passion to be of service. Yes. Definitely. And so I, I think that's where I got that. And I have a friend that I met that she also had a horrific childhood. And we were kind of interviewing each other, like, how did we turn out okay? And she also had one woman love her because she had a mentally ill mom and wasn't getting love there. And I was interviewing, and I was like, well, but, but research shows that kids who are abused, who have one person love them, it usually needs to be over a long period to have them psychologically turn out, you know, where they can manage their life and have God heal. And for both of us, it was a really short time. And for both of us, it ended in a difficult way. So we don't really match that profile. And so I was interviewing her more. And I said, did you have a near-death experience? And she said, well, first she said no. And then I interviewed her more. And she said, well, I... I did have something where I had an extreme fever and, and the uh-huh. neighbor yes. finally broke down the door because her mom wasn't taking her to the hospital and the neighbor took her to the hospital and there she had her near death experience. <clears throat> and so I realized <clears throat> that not only did having one woman just love us, but the near death experience also gave us some spark to, like I said, make meaning of our experience, bring it home. And so my hope is that I can spread that spark for others who haven't had any death experience and bring my, what I was given to others and help them heal. Yeah. All that unconditional love. I have to ask you, when you recall your story of your near death experience, is it clear like it happened yesterday or is it a memory that you've told many times? You know, that's a great question, because when I first started writing my book, it was just seven pages, and I didn't know I was starting to write a book. And um, John, who's now my husband, he read it. He said, this is really important. Tell us more. And I said, I don't have more. And so he did this beautiful, loving process of interviewing me. And I say he's lovingly merciless, because he wouldn't let me get away with anything in terms of like the the memory I have of the, what we call them, the man in the field. Um, it was just a little blip at first, but he interviewed me and interviewed me with really neutral questions. And he said, this is really important. I sense something very big here and you're, you haven't gotten to it yet. I want you to go back upstairs and work on this and unpack it. And I was actually kind of mad. Unpack it. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> and I went upstairs and I said, I don't remember anymore. And then I started writing and he said, you know, tell me what he looked like. Tell me what happened. Tell me how you felt. Tell me, like, breathe in and out and tell me more. And I unpacked it, and I was sobbing. And I came downstairs, and I said, 
this was one of the most important parts of my near-death experience, and I didn't actually remember it. And I was telling it to him, and I described what this man looked like, and he looked at me in this huge smile on his face. And I wasn't raised Christian, and I you know, didn't go to Bible school. And, and he looked at me, and he said, that, do you know who that is? And I said, no. And he looked at me, and he laughed, and he said, the Lord is my shepherd. And he said, you had a sheep herder's staff that you saw? And I was like, oh, my gosh, that was Jesus. And I didn't even realize it. So the beauty of him interviewing me and unpacking it then opened up this huge relationship for me with Jesus. Uh, and and it, it sounds like it flooded back. And yes. you had so much trauma. I couldn't even imagine. And the reason I ask is because sometimes, uh, a lot of times when I talk to people that have had a near-death experience, um, the memories are crystal clear. And it sounds like once John coaxed, and what a great husband you have, coaxed you oh, to yeah. unpack that clarity came through because you tell the story with such clarity that I think um, some healing has occurred that's allowed it to be okay for your brain to remember it all. And it's fascinating. And and that's why it's taken me nine years to write the book because each time he would ask me to unpack something, I would have to go through the emotions about it and go through and relive. And sometimes that was just quiet tears and I'd be ready to write more. And sometimes it was a huge process. I would think so. It's post-traumatic stress. I mean, that's, I can't even imagine being a child going through what you went through. Cannot even imagine. Yeah. And when we went back and we found the field where my village was, and I got to do my dream that I'd been wanting for 40 years, to go back, bow down on that land, put my forehead to the soil, and thank them for not only saving my life, but teaching me and reminding me of my wholeness. And that even though I had so much more trauma and abuse to go through once I returned to the U.S., they're loving me and me seeing what's possible when people love bravely was this anchor for me to remain in my ethic of kindness, remain in my ethic of trying to do the best to be good to others. And I really believe it's how I didn't come out bitter. And when I got to bow down on that land, I felt them rush back into me, that they were all there. And it was like 10 people rushing into my heart. And my hands got warm with the healing powers of the women. And and when we were riding away from that, you know, getting to do my dream and getting to thank them and feel them with me so solidly again, John said, if you could change it, if you could erase the abduction, change the being shot, would you? And without really any hesitation, especially now that I got to go back. You said no. <laughs> I said no. Because it opened me to be uh, health intuitive. It opened me to be able to hear people and be with people in their crossing and it opened the visual art. It opened my ability to intuition is just so easy for me. I can. That's great. Just, the other day, I was there was some friends that they were losing a member of their family, and they had um, decided that you know that it was time to take the un, undo the plug. And then the person wasn't actually crossing, and so they called me and they said, "Can you help us?" And I. And it's so easy for me just to go and stand beside the person where they are in that, you know, in-between place between life and death. And I could see as she sees. And and I just kind of talked to her for a bit and helped her clarify that she could have forgiveness for herself and forgiveness for her father. And then I asked her if she thought she was coming or going. And I got an image of just her heart opening up and kind of her valves in her heart opening up and not closing again and I knew that she was going to cross and so I called the family member and I told them what I saw and by the end of the time she ended the phone conversation and she walked back in the room and the and the woman's heart had had stopped wow. and and just to, if I can be of service that way just to help people like in their healing with the mm-hmm. medicine or my visual art or my health intuition it's like for God's sake, who am I not to use the gifts that I, I've been given? 
I want to know a little bit more about the singing medicine because mm-hmm. you say you've get, um, delivered it to over 10,000 people, which I think is just amazing. And then the workshop you're going to do with your husband can, in with your permission, can I include a little clip of the singing medicine at the end of this episode? Oh, just certainly. So people could hear it. Just the one that's on your website is just, it just gave me goosebumps and filled me oh. with love. Mm-hmm. just to give a little taste of what that is. But how do you use that to work with people? And and I know you're speaking at um, conferences, and I want to mention the uh, symposium coming up. But uh, how do you deliver that, the singing medicine? And so I really, it's it's unique each time. It has kind of my signature sounds and my signature phrases. But what I'm doing is I'm just, when I'm I close each of my healing sessions by singing to each person. And, and I just really tap in and listen, like, can I hear their song? Because everybody is born with their, their seed song. That's their signature song. And so if I can match, you know, my medicine song with their medicine song that they carry within and give that back to them, sometimes when I, when I do get it, you know, I'm able to hear and I get it right, that people say, I already knew that song. And it's so familiar. And when I sing with John, this is actually how we fell in love and got together is that he, I met him and he said, why do I hear something that sounds like native singing when I stand next to you? And I was really impressed. I wasn't even opening my mouth and he could actually just hear it in my being. And kind of shyly, he said, well, I've had this scene coming through me for the past year or so that I don't know what it's about, but could we get together and just experiment with this and try this out? And so we did that for about nine months of just kind of playing around and trying this out. And then at about nine months, something happened where our voices merged. And I call it two creeks came together and became one river voice. And divinity sang through both of us at the same time. Or it's the idea of being the hollow bone and letting the music and the sound come through. So when we sing together and when we do workshops, we um, sometimes we do two formats. We either sing to the group as a whole or we sing to each person individually. And he and I just let ourselves completely surrender. It's like annihilation of our own egos so that we can just be the conduit for that medicine song to come through for that person or the group. And it's a, it's a really amazing process because we don't, there's nothing planned or practiced about it. It's very spontaneous. And it's just an incredible honor to be of service in this way because People, you know, weep, they have revelations, they sometimes feel physical healing, they get to feel connection to their loved ones that might have crossed over. And it's like one woman remembered her childhood abuse and then it was able to do the healing and it was a total transformation in her life. She considers that a huge pivot point for her. So it's, like I say, it's just an incredible honor to be able to be of service in this way and and it's really needed in our American culture to use voice, use sound. Yes, I agree. And I it's agree. happening more and more, which I love. Yeah, some of the other cultures have it, and that's something we don't. Um, but it's yeah. beautiful. And I encourage the listener now, you who's listening, to just, after I say goodbye at the end of this episode, just to listen for five more minutes to one of these um, healing, uh, singing medicine, because it's just fantastic. Uh, so let's, if we can, just because time's going by quickly, Robin, um, talk about the, some of the upcoming things that you've got going on. You're going to be doing a lot of speaking, and um, I know this might be too quick for some of our listeners, maybe not, but you're going to be February 8th and 9th in Ions, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, Chuck Swigodok is the organizer there, and he's been so kind to invite me back again, and... Um, yeah, so I'll be in Tucson on Thursday and then Mesa on Friday. And then on the weekend, um, there's the really amazing um, The Human Triumph. And uh, Jeff Olson has put that together with some other people. He's great. And, yeah. Oh, my goodness, I'm so excited about that. The premise of The He's Human Triumph. He's been a Triumph. guest on this. Abra- if, in anybody, you know, you might listen to this and it's, 2020 <laughs> but and and i understand you're not going to make this one but feel free to go to robinlandsong.com 
because if you can make one of these, but if not, just check and see what, what she's up to. Um, but this is, it sounds incredible, Human Triumph. And talk to us about the uh, 2018 Texas Symposium. Yeah, so they're putting that on again. I had such a fun time last year. Um, so again, it's the Central Ions uh, chapter that's putting that on. And uh, last year, I had so much fun because there's just such warm hearted people putting mm-hmm. it together. And we also got to hear the auction for a pie, what is that called? Um, pie social, <laughs> just a little Texas thing that I loved. I don't know about that, but I love Texas. <laughs> yeah. Um, so again, it's just gathering a, a lot of really fantastic speakers, near-death experiencers, and just really asking, like, what did we get from these experiences? And how can we bring that to people who aren't near-deathers to improve their lives, decrease fear of dying? you know, increase happiness. And last year we took our, my stepson, he's, he was 13 at the time. And at the end of the first day, I said, well, what have you gotten out of it so far? And he said, to be kind, that if you have the chance to be kind, do it. That's because beautiful. it makes a really big difference in your life and everybody else's. Yeah, I'm on the website now for that. And it's neardeathwisdom.com. And for anyone interested or can make it to Austin, Texas, it's March 23rd through 25th, 2018 at the Omni Austin Hotel South Park, uh, neardeathwisdom.com. And what the, what can the afterlife teach us about living? And I know we speak a lot about, there's a September symposium, Robin, that's in Scottsdale, Arizona. This one's different, and this one is um, folks that uh, can speak on the near-death experience. But it's the same. If you're a listener of the show, I guarantee you, you will love this event in Austin, Texas. And you meet a lot of like-minded people. There'll be a lot of love, and you'll get a lot of good for your own life. So I'm really excited that you'll be speaking there. And I wish I could be there. I'll be traveling internationally then. But I know, Robin, our paths will cross in the future. They just will. Mm -hmm. I just know that. And I'm really grateful that you spent this time with us. And do you have any closing words? Um, well, I was just wondering uh, if the sound quality is good enough, if you'd like me to sing to you. Uh, heck yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, this would be my song or a song for the show or just um, what you're was, inspired? Uh, I'm going to tap into you. Oh, y- yes, 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 and yes. No one's ever okay. offered, and I would love that. All right. All right, so I'm just going to get still and listen. Oh, you have such a big heart. Thanks. generosity in your heart, the ways that you show up and do your gift, honoring the ways that you're present with everyone you meet, honoring the ways you're able to see the big picture of healing for our culture, for our world, and that your courage to show up and do your part to be the catalyst for change. What an extraordinary gift for all of us. Thank you so much. Oh, Robin, thank you for that. You just left me with tears in my eyes. And for you, thank you for the gift you are. And for our listener, uh, I know my story is a lot different than Robin's, but it came out of my deepest pain for the loss of my dad. And I know each one of us have pain and we have struggles. And if we can 
believe for just a moment that out of each and every one of our pain and we're going to crack wide open, something beautiful will bloom, that we each find our own healing song. Um, and so, oh, wow, Robin, thank you for being our guest. Uh, just, Pleasure. Uh, just a reminder, go to com. find out more, um, go visit her at one of her upcoming events or the neardeathwisdom.com, that Texas symposium. And I just, I love that, that, that it's just beautiful, that song. It's hard to speak because I have so many tears in my eyes, but <laughs> in closing, thank you to you and thank you to our beautiful listener right now. Your life is for a purpose. Your life matters. You will find that song within you and just sing it because there are people that need to hear your words. You are important, my friend. So I want to thank you for listening and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.